Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Paul uses the metaphor of a mirror two times. In 1 Corinthians, he uses it, and in 2 Corinthians. He's using the imagery very differently in 1 Corinthians to depict the incomplete or the fragmentary. And in 2 Corinthians, he's using it precisely in the opposite way to talk about the completion and fullness that is being brought about in Christ. And so we're about to read uh, from 1 Corinthians 13, his deployment of the metaphor here is linked to the tendency among the Corinthians toward disunity. They're making things that are secondary, they're making those primary, and they're mistaking the present tense for uh, all that there is and the partial for the complete and the whole. In 2 Corinthians, and we'll also read that passage, he's using the mirror to describe the progression toward completion and wholeness that even now we are realizing. So if we reflect wrong, 1 Corinthians 13, we make the mistake of taking the temporal for the eternal. And of course, we want to dwell upon how to reflect right, and that's the question then that we'll address. But let's first read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, to fall uh, down to verse 13. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So everything other than love is partial, temporary, piecemeal, and will come to an end. But love never fails. It never, actually the word here, it never falls. It never comes to an end. We could say that it contains the end in itself, that the goal is love. Knowledge, gifts, gifts of the Spirit, even faith and hope are not an end in themselves. We might say it that they do not cohere, they do not make sense in and of themselves, as they are aimed at something outside of what they are. Love is the purpose of these things. And if these things serve love, then they are useful. And if they do not, then even spirituality, even religion can serve sin if it obstructs love. 
So the example he's used is knowledge. You know, the Corinthians are very proud of their knowledge. But Paul has already told them that knowledge apart from love uh, just serves arrogance. It serves pride. And that's Paul's point here, that all of these gifts, if they are not in the service of love, then they're misused. And so the gift of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, maybe we need to distinguish those two things. In the gift of the Spirit, well, what is this? This is the gift of the Spirit is life, is love. And the gifts of the Spirit are simply to lift up that possibility. And so Paul's warning the Corinthians not to confuse the means, you know, tongues, knowledge, wisdom, prophecy, the various gifts. Don't confuse the means with the end. Don't confuse the gifts for the gift. Everything else is relative to love. Relative in the sense that this is their purpose and relative in the sense that they are valued and enduring in relationship to this service and only there. And so his deployment of the mirror metaphor is connected to this picture of the difference between maturity and immaturity. And the tendency among the Corinthians is toward disunity, mistaking the present and partial for the complete and whole. That's immature. It is looking at the world wrongly. And this aligns, uh, interestingly, with the psychoanalytic stage called the mirror stage. In the mirror stage, it's the point when the child is able to recognize its image in the mirror. And it's also the point when the child enters into language. Actually, this was a story that told, uh, Freud told when he's babysitting his grandson. He notices both things are happening. They happen simultaneously. And the formation of the ego, the sense of self, is at this stage. It requires the capacity to objectify, you know, oh, that's me in the mirror. And the presumption is that the I, you know, I am the object in the mirror. But of course, that's a mistake at some level, because the image, first of all, is not an object. It's not permanent. It is a simple, it's a visual reference, and that's the mistake that in psychoanalysis is connected with the problem in human subjectivity. So the location of this mirror, it's outside of the self, I think here in 1 Corinthians 13, reflecting back only a surface image, only partial, incomplete. And the word that Paul uses here he, is the word we get our word enigma from. There's an enigma in the mirror. And the problem is that the image, as with the gifts of the Spirit, taken for an end in itself, it fragments the self. Because actually there are the gifts. Well, there is me. I'm here and there's my image there. The visual image and the symbolic linguistic I creates two eyes, actually. There I am, here I am is in, in the child's experience. It reminds us of Paul's picture in Romans 7. There's two eyes. But also here in, in uh, Corinthians, both depict a body in rebellion against itself. You know, the two eyes or the various organs. In their misorientation and misfocus, they would destroy the body. Which, by the way, is the definition of cancer, right? When the body rebels against itself. 
Paul calls it the body of death. He uses the word knowledge here, but he uses it in two ways. He uses the noun form when he's talking about bad knowledge, the wrong understanding, to depict the Corinthian tendency to make knowledge an end in itself, knowledge without love. The Jewish mistake that he's going to talk about, we'll come to in a minute, in 2 Corinthians is to take the law as an end in itself, the source of life. Is there life in the law? And this illustrates the universal orientation. This is our problem. It's not just the Jewish problem. We would take the partial, the part, the sign, the law as an end in itself. And Paul develops in conjunction with his second mirror metaphor in 2 Corinthians then, this idea. So that we're still talking, we're, we're talking about the same problem, but he's going to shift the problem. The specific linguistic gifts are interesting here. You know, what are the prophecy, tongues, knowledge? They're all dealing with language, exclusiveness, similar to the law. But they are meaningless apart from love. And so the Corinthians are repeating the error of the Jews. But of course the error of the Jews is just everybody's error. But we imagine what is partial, dependent, fragmentary. As some way an end in itself. You know, just think of the things around us, the things in the world. But when he, Paul is using the correct form of knowledge, he uses the term knowing as a verb. That knowledge, he's saying, is a process. It comes to us bit by bit. It's provisional. It's fragmentary. But if you're understanding that, then you have a correct understanding of human knowledge. If one does not recognize, in other words, the condition of the mirror, but takes an immature attitude, the present and partial will be taken as the goal. So to seek integration or to seek wholeness to seek unity you know that's the Paul's picture Do, can you be an eye can everybody be an eyeball what if the eye you know says to the ear the the foot says to the hand this is the inherent frustration of wanting to be you know I want everything to be about me everything revolving around the ego that's what every child experiences that's immaturity the visual reference, the sign, the ego, the gift, taken as a final end is to confuse the sign and what it's pointing to. You know, this is the story of Narcissus, that he sees his image in the water and he would obtain his image and he jumps in the water and drowns, trying to get his image. Paul says in this chapter, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Death by drowning or by fire as a loveless, self-absorbed act. That's fruitless. That's Paul's point. This is the body of death, as Paul calls it. His description of the body parts attacking and refusing to work in harmony. And of course, he's talking about the church in Corinth. That everybody needs to recognize their gift and work in harmony. And in doing this, to, to have love for one another. And if you're not doing that, then your religion, he's saying, is empty. Up to and including martyrdom. 
And of course, it's the same condition of being loveless in you know, the body of death, in sin. Uh, it doesn't really matter if, if your religion does not have love. You're, you, you're struggling to find the whole and the part. That's the definition of sin. That's the inherent frustration of the struggle of sin that Paul describes. And so the difference between immaturity and maturity pivots on the issue of love. Love changes up everything in that all else falls into its relative, partial, temporary, momentary place in relation to love. Love's infinite endurance is the purpose of the temporary, the temporary gifts, the substance. You know, what is the substance of the gift? It's love, it's life. And so the difference between the gifts and their point, you know, this is the, the illustration, it's the difference between seeing in a mirror and seeing face to face. The key is passage beyond, you know, what's the difference between seeing mirror in a mirror and seeing face to face? Well, face to face, it's the dynamism of two people interpenetrating one another. Before God, there is a vulnerability and openness to the other. Seeing, it's not simply one way, seeing and being seen. And this then is the mutuality of love. Now Paul already here is, I think in 1 Corinthians 13, he's providing a clue to the use of the mirror that we're going to turn to in 2 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. He's already describing a present experience of what is called the beatific vision, the vision of God. That we can begin to have that, I think, is what he's describing in 2 Corinthians. But in both instances, the point is that it gets beyond a unidirectional seeing to a multidirectional relationship. Let me read from 2 Corinthians 3.18. But all of us with face unveiled mirroring the Lord's glory are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Lord's spirit. The unveiled face is what he's describing and in contrast to the veiled, you know, that Moses is going to wear, we'll come to that, is now continually absorbing and reflecting, taking in and being taken in, seeing and being seen. The mirror, he still uses the image of the mirror, but the, the mirror is located differently and its content is different. The difference is that the image, the mirror is in the image of the face and is reflecting Christ. Reflection of Christ in the human face or the human image, he's describing a real world eternal change. And he's contrasting this to, to the mosaic reflection of glory. Look at 12 and 13 in this same chapter. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. What's he saying? Well, Moses used a veil. I don't know if that was Moses' idea or not, but, or God, I don't think it was God's idea. He's using the veil to hide that his vision of God 
did not bring an intrinsic enduring change. And Paul explains down in verse 14, the same veil prevents the children of Israel from seeing that the law is not an end in itself, but it has its end in Christ. That is, they did not see the end of it. Moses prevented their seeing the purpose. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. So the Jewish problem is the Corinthian problem, which is the human problem. The veil causes the Jews to imagine that life, God, glory is in the law. Perhaps the veil, you know, serves its purpose, as it does in Paul's explanation here, of specifying the nature of human blindness. What is it that we can't see? The veil hides the transitory nature of what we would presume is final. But isn't every cover-up, every fabricated identity, think back to the original pair in Eden, isn't every cover-up aimed at obscuring what is passing away, what is to be abolished? And of course, pride always covers this shameful condition. That's what we're always in the business of fabricating in our sinfulness. And Moses' veil marks precisely what it is we would hide. And so if the veil functions in the Jewish heart to hide the passing, the transitive, the partial, look what Paul says on down. This explains why the law... And he actually, you know, the, the word grammar here, the letter, the, the written document, maybe it means scripture. I mean, grammar is the word they use for the, the Old Testament scripture. He says the letter kills. Verse 5, now that we are, ad, not that we are adequate, that's the issue. Are you adequate in yourself? Not that we are adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What comes from ourselves? You know, well, it's inadequate. Our image, our ego, our self, language, the law, culture, you know, you could just go on. If it's something that we fabricate, we make, we write it, as an end in itself, it's inadequate. The letter or scripture kills if it's taken as an object, you know, if it's taken as an end in itself. If it's the sign, it's the taking a sign as the end rather than the signified. Paul says death's ministry, verse seven, is by way of scriptures, grandma, engraved in stone. He's referring, of course, to the Ten Commandments. The law taken as an end is death-dealing, as the words are stone-cold objects. The law is like an epitaph that you would put on a gravestone, which actually they think the first writing were graves markers. But it is not of the spirit, it is not of life. 
And of course, the Spirit brings about he's the image of transformation that he's describing. So the Spirit does his work as what is being reflected is no longer, it's no longer an outward bodily image or the striving toward a partial thing. We pass from that sort of mirror, you know, images, signs, to the inward likeness. The one symbolized, Christ, the inward likeness of the person of Christ, reflected in our faces, reflecting him. So there is cooperation, there is co-participation. The mirror and the thing mirrored are of one origin and nature. We're being transformed into his likeness because we're actually, you know, there is a participation in him. I've been reading a, a writer named George MacDonald. I hadn't heard of George MacDonald, but he's the, the writer that gave inspiration to C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and uh, actually Lewis Carroll, who wrote the, the children's stories. Uh, he was a huge figure in his day and age who has almost disappeared, but a, a, a real genius, uh, a minister. Let me quote George MacDonald on this passage. Paul's idea is that when we take into our understanding, our heart, our conscience, our being, the glory of God, namely Jesus Christ, as he shows himself to our eyes, our hearts, our consciences, he works upon us and will keep working till we are changed to the very likeness we have thus mirrored in us. For with his likeness, he comes himself and dwells in us. He will work until the same likeness is wrought and perfected in us. The image, namely, of the humanity of God, in which image we were made at first, but which could never be developed in us except by the indwelling of the perfect likeness. By the power of Christ thus received and at home in us, we are changed. The glory in him becoming glory in us, his glory changing us to glory. So the mirror, which formerly, you know, this reflected eye or the image, now reflects the image of Christ. We've exchanged, you know, this is Paul's picture in Galatians. It is no longer I that live, but it's Christ Jesus that lives within me. Our spiritual mirror is no longer absorbed by ourselves as another gazes and we gaze at another. And this interpenetrating gaze is one that is transforming us. We're no longer focused on the static noun, knowledge, form, but on a dynamic verb, the logos. So it's not a static, you know, thing that we're achieving, but it's the person of Christ, and that's the difference. We could say the sign, you know, the word, the logos, and what it signifies are now brought together. They're not separate in Christ. Our thought is not cut off from his thought. We can think his thoughts after him. Let me quote George MacDonald one more time. Thus the Lord, the Spirit, becomes the soul of our souls, becomes spiritually what he always was creatively, 
And as our spirit informs, gives shape to our bodies, in like manner his soul informs, gives shape to our souls. We face full to the sun that enlightens what it sent forth, and know ourselves alive with an infinite life, even the life of the Father. We have life, the life of Jesus has. Through light become life in us. The glory of God in the face of Jesus, mirrored in our hearts, has made us alive. We are one with God forever and ever. It's a beautiful vision of our present participation in a growing beatific vision. So the conclusion, you know, psychoanalysis. Actually, in psychoanalysis, there is only the mirror stage. You, you start there and you stop there. You really can't get out of it. 1 Corinthians 13, it hints, you know, but it's primarily a future res resolution. But here in 2 Corinthians, Paul depicts the Christian as the mirror in which the face-to-face -face encounter, it's already begun. It's actually present progressive, being transformed. The removal of the veil in turning to the Lord is a turn from enslavement, enslavement to the law, death, and Paul describes it, it's the founding of a free subject. Verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The transformation of the subject into Christ's image, he says from glory to glory, I guess that just goes on and on, right? There's no end to it. That's what eternity will be. It is a dynamic, eternally ongoing process. And of course, it deals not primarily in one's own image or the dead scriptures, the wall, but the living word, the person of Christ through the spirit who is transforming us. And so psychoanalysis misses it. And what Paul provides is passage beyond the mirror stage into mirroring the glory of the Father in the image of the Son by the Spirit. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.